Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hello from all of us at Macmillan Audio. If you enjoyed Case Closed, there's a new audiobook from New York Times best-selling author Philip Margolin that we know you'll love. Read by Therese Plummer, Murder at Black Oaks finds attorney Robin Lockwood at an isolated retreat in the Oregon mountains. One with a tragic past and a legendary curse, and surrounded by many suspects and confronted with an impossible crime. Take a listen to the first 16 minutes right now, and then get the full audiobook wherever audiobooks are sold today. This book is available now. Chapter 1. 1990. In order for an Oregon circuit court judge to sentence a defendant charged with aggravated murder to death, all 12 members of a defendant's jury had to answer yes to several questions. Those questions asked whether the defendant deliberately killed the victim without justifiable provocation, whether there was a probability that the defendant would commit acts of violence in the future, and whether, given all the circumstances in the case, the jurors thought the defendant should be sentenced to death. As soon as the foreperson of the jury in the sentencing phase of Jose Alvarez's capital murder case told Judge Muriel Jacobs that the jurors had unanimously found against Jose Alvarez, Judge Jacobs took a deep breath. Facing her with a stunned expression was a 24-year-old college student whose bright future had turned to ashes. Judge Jacobs took a sip of water before speaking. When she did speak, it took an effort to appear calm. This was the first time she had to impose a sentence of death, and she felt sick. Mr. Alvarez, you have just heard that the jurors have unanimously decided that the punishment in your case should be a sentence of death. Since they have reached this verdict, the law gives me no choice but to remand you to the custody of the Department of Corrections, where you will remain until a sentence of death has been carried out. Your attorney will advise you about your recourse at law. Jose stared at the judge. His legs shook, and he had to brace himself on the counsel table to stay upright. Please, judge, I would never hurt Margot. Don't do this. I have no choice, Mr. Alvarez. Once your jurors reached its decision, my hands were tied. I'm sorry. And the judge was genuinely sorry. Even though she was convinced that Alvarez had murdered his girlfriend, she would not have condemned the young man to death. Jose collapsed onto a seat. In the spectator section, Jose's parents began to cry. They were immigrants who had dedicated their lives to giving their brilliant son an education. 
He had repaid them by graduating near the top of his high school class and maintaining a straight-A average in engineering at an elite college. Now the object of all their energy would rot on death row until he was put down with a lethal injection. Frank Melville watched Jose's attorney lay a comforting hand on his client's shoulder. The deputy district attorney knew that Jose's lawyer was telling Jose that they would appeal, that his death at the hands of the state was not a foregone conclusion. Frank knew that Jose's life would not be saved by the Oregon Supreme Court. The trial had been very clean, and there were no errors in the record that would lead to a new trial. Frank put the file on the Alvarez case in his attache case. He was relieved that his role in this tragedy was over. When the young district attorney had won his other capital cases, he had felt proud that he had avenged a killer's victim. But he wasn't experiencing the same jolt of electricity now. Frank hefted his attache case and walked through the bar of the court. He had taken a few steps up the aisle when Jose's parents blocked his way. They didn't look angry. They looked bewildered. Frank knew from the police reports that Pablo and Maria Alvarez were in their mid-fifties, but they looked frail and much older. Frank had no idea how they had looked before Jose's arrest, but he was certain that Jose's ordeal had aged them. Please, Maria begged, do not do this to our son. The court guard saw what was happening and walked between Frank and Jose's parents. Frank wanted to say something but the finest orator in the district attorney's office was lost. Frank mumbled, I'm sorry, and walked toward the courtroom door, fighting the impulse to race into the corridor. Several deputy district attorneys had been in the spectator section to hear the verdict. As soon as the four-person delivered it, most of them went upstairs to tell everyone about Frank's latest victory. When Frank walked toward his office, everyone stood up and clapped, Melville ducked his head and raised his hand halfway to acknowledge the applause before closing his office door and dropping onto the chair behind his desk. Frank appreciated the applause, but he had mixed emotions about the sentence the judge had imposed. Jose Alvarez had proclaimed his innocence when he testified, but Melville had no doubts, reasonable or otherwise, that Alvarez had bludgeoned Margot Prescott to death in her dorm room at Randolph College, where they were students. Several witnesses had seen the couple quarreling shortly before the murder. Archie Stallings had testified that he had seen Jose run from the scene with blood on his clothes. Jose's bloody handprint had been discovered on Prescott's body, and the victim's blood was found on Alvarez's clothing. Melville had given Alvarez a way out. He'd offered to drop the possibility of a death sentence if Alvarez pled to life with the possibility of parole. Alvarez had rejected the offer, so he'd made his choice. Why then did Frank feel deflated instead of ecstatic? Was he worried that subconscious bias had played a part in the jury's decision to execute a poor Hispanic who was dating a rich white co-ed? Would the jury have spared Alvarez if he had been an upper-class wasp like Archie Stallings and his victim had been a poor Mexican? Frank had used his exceptional oratorical skills to convince the jurors to vote for death, but now that he'd done his duty, he wondered if he'd done the right thing. Frank sighed. There was no profit in second-guessing. 
What was done was done. The odds were against the death sentence being carried out anyway. Alvarez would have an automatic appeal to the Oregon Supreme Court. Post-conviction review would follow. Then there would be federal appeals, and on and on. There were even rumors that the governor was going to order a moratorium on death sentences. Hell, it was almost impossible to get executed in Oregon. There were convicts who had been on death row for decades. Melville closed his eyes and massaged his eyelids. He was exhausted. Trying a death penalty case took everything out of you. When he opened his eyes, he looked at his watch. It was four o'clock, and there was no way he would be able to concentrate on his other cases. He needed to go home, hug his wife, and slug down a stiff drink. The young DA put the Alvarez files and trial book on the center of his desk, turned out the lights, and left for home. The house in Portland's West Hills, where Frank Melville lived, was not one that Frank could have afforded on a deputy district attorney's salary. The 4,000-square-foot Tudor home had been a wedding gift from his wife's parents. During his second year in law school, Larry Trent, Frank's best friend, had fixed him up with Catherine Whitlow, and they had fallen madly in love. Frank knew that Catherine had just returned from a year in England, where she had studied European history at Oxford. He didn't know that she was the sole heir to a fortune until they had been dating for nine months and she finally invited him to her parents' $30 million estate in California. Frank's parents were middle class and he had worked to pay for college and law school. He'd never seen anything like the estate, which wasn't even the Whitlow's primary residence. The Melvilles' summer home had been a cabin they rented one week a year on a lake outside of Bend in central Oregon. Catherine's father was a self-made man whose fortune had been made when logging was the main industry in Oregon, and he'd taken to Frank right away. Catherine had never made the difference in their net worth an issue, and the couple were as much in love now as they had been during their courtship. Catherine knew that the jury was going to deliver its verdict in the sentencing phase of the Alvarez trial, and she met Frank at the front door. What happened? She asked when she saw that her husband was not smiling. The jury voted for death. Catherine frowned. Why aren't you happy? Frank shook his head. I'm not sure I did the right thing when I argued for the death penalty. You told me that you thought he was guilty. Oh, he killed Prescott. It's just, Frank shook his head again. Catherine wrapped her arms around him and he laid his cheek against hers. I love you, Frank said. Ditto. Catherine answered as she hugged him tighter. Frank pulled back. Hey, watch out. You're squashing Frank Jr. <laughs> you mean Nellie Melville. Frank patted Catherine's stomach where her baby bump had just started to show. That's definitely a boy. You wish, Catherine said. Then they kissed again, and Catherine steered Frank toward the stairs that led to their bedroom. Get changed, and I'll get dinner. Okay, Frank said, smiling, because he knew that he was the luckiest man in the whole wide world. By the time Frank came down to dinner, the fate of Jose Alvarez was only a faint source of discomfort. By the end of the next week, he was deep into the prosecution of a gangbanger who had murdered a rival gang member, 
and Jose was a distant memory. Chapter 2 1997 After the Alvarez case, Frank started losing enthusiasm for his work, and two years after Jose Alvarez was sentenced to death, Frank Melville left his job at the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office for a partnership in the law firm of his old friend, Lawrence Trent. Frank found that he had a knack for personal injury work, and he felt good every time he got a judgment for someone who needed the money to help them on the road to recovery from an accident. Frank also took on the occasional criminal case. The reputation for excellence he had earned as the top prosecutor in the DA's office brought many potential criminal clients to Trent and Melville, and the money he was making allowed him the luxury of being able to pick and choose who he would represent. The day Frank's life began its descent into hell started on a high note. Frank dropped Nellie Melville off at her school on her second week in first grade. He beamed as he saw her two best friends race up to her and escort his daughter inside, and he smiled all the way to his office. After spending his time in the trenches at the DA's office, where the horrible and the bizarre were commonplace, it took a lot to surprise Frank but he was genuinely surprised when his receptionist told him that Archie Stallings was in the waiting room. Frank had not seen Stallings since thanking him after his testimony in the guilt phase of Jose Alvarez's trial, and he wondered why his star witness wanted to see him. When Frank walked into reception, he almost didn't recognize Stallings. In college, Archie had been on the tennis team and looked like an athlete. His thick chestnut brown hair would often fall across his brow. There had been a twinkle in his eye, and he projected a look of boyish charm. Seven years later, Archie didn't look so good. He'd put on weight around his middle. His face was fleshy, and he was going prematurely bald. But the grin was still in place, and he stood and flashed it when Frank walked over. Hi, Mr. Melville. Hello, Archie. What's up? The grin faded. I'd rather not talk about it here. Of course, follow me back to my office. Frank settled behind his desk and Stallings took a client chair. He looked uncomfortable. What are you doing now? Frank asked to break the ice. I'm a financial advisor with the Macklin Fund. I I've been there two years. Stallings forced a smile. I'm doing okay business-wise, but not... So good otherwise. Oh? Yeah, well, I got married my senior year. I met Audrey at the Westmont, he said. The Westmont was Oregon's most exclusive country club, and Frank and Catherine were members. Audrey filed for divorce six months ago. And this bitch, Stallings, caught himself. I guess I shouldn't call her that. Her name is Jane Emery. She's another analyst. She's been coming on to me, and we went out a few times. Now she's gotten me in big trouble. Stallings shook his head. My boss told me that they'd have to let me go if I didn't straighten out this mess. Melville frowned. I'm not following you. Stallings leaned forward and looked Frank in the eye. We had consensual sex. It was in her place. She invited me up. Now she's saying I raped her. They arrested me at my office. It was humiliating. 
My dad got his lawyer on it pronto, and I'm out on bail, but my dad's lawyer doesn't do criminal, and you're the best. Tell me what happened after you were arrested. The detective was a real asshole. He kept calling me a spoiled rich kid, as if Jane's family didn't have big bucks. And he made the cuffs tight, and he threatened me. Said he thought guys who raped women were pieces of shit. He kept on telling me I'd find out how rape felt when I was in the penitentiary. I've never been so scared. What did you say? I watch a lot of law shows on TV, so I knew I had to keep my cool and my mouth shut. You don't have to worry about me. I didn't rape Jane, and I didn't say anything that could be used against me. That's good. So, Mr. Melville, will you take my case? Because I really need the best. Let's talk business before we go any further. Defending a case like this could be very expensive. Frank told Stallings what he'd need as a retainer and how much more expensive things could get if they had to go to trial. The money's no problem. Dad's good for it. You give me a figure and I'll have a check to you tomorrow. Okay, Frank said. Then he took a legal pad out of his desk. Let's get going. Thank you for listening to this clip provided to you by Macmillan Audio. To hear more, look for this title wherever audiobooks are sold. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.